With COVID-19 cases on the rise in Canada, the lingering question that's on a lot of people's minds is, when the heck are we going to get a vaccine for this thing? Well, some promising signs on that front is a pair of pharmaceutical companies say they have vaccines almost ready to go. I'm Dave Breckenridge, and this is 10-3. National Post health reporter Sharon Kirkey joins me to talk about why cases are on the rise in Canada, the promise shown by these vaccine developments, and the challenge of getting them distributed once they're approved. Don't forget you can find me on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your favorite shows. I'd love it if you could leave us a rating, a review, and tell your friends about us. Sharon, within the span of a month or so, COVID cases have soared in places like Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, Manitoba, anywhere really outside the Atlantic provinces. What's been going on the last couple of months? It's not just many parts of Canada, but many countries around the world are dealing with this, uh, you know, really rapid surge in cases. And in Canada, we're seeing, like you mentioned, spikes in regions, including regions that were, you know, mostly spared in the first wave, like Manitoba, and now Nunavut, and, and even the Atlantic provinces, the famous Atlantic bubble, they're seeing cases increasing as well. I think what happened is that we kind of let our guard down and we didn't prepare over the summer, even though we had experts warning that a fall surge was entirely predictable and we needed to prepare. So I think what happened, you know, back in the first wave back in March, there was this kind of, you know, captive sense of fear and dread. We didn't know what lay ahead and we were dealing with harsh, you know, really harsh restrictions. But then we kind of avoided, you know, that catastrophe, that worst case scenario by following the public health advice and, and, and adhering to the restrictions. You know, we had lo- many, many deaths, but, you know, our hospitals weren't overwhelmed the way they were in, say, Italy and New York. And then in the summer, we started opening up again. Bars and restaurants and gyms started to reopen. And I think we started to think that things were kind of more normal again. You know, cases were you know, relatively low. And mm-hmm. so regions kept opening up more. And the problem was we still had infections where we didn't know the mode of transmission. You know, we didn't know how this person became infected. And then in many places, you know, we didn't take the summer to ramp up our, you know, capacity to really, really rapidly, you know, test, trace, isolate. We kind of lost control over you know, those transmissions I mentioned of unknown origin, they call them no epi link or no epidemiological link. And community transmission is now really running rampant, you know, in many regions. And experts say what happened is we waited too long to reintroduce restrictions in areas where we really needed to, you know, especially in hot spots in Ontario, they came two months too late, um, mm-hmm. some people said. And now and now COVID's second wave is, is eclipsing its first. So is that essentially where like where we kind of failed is the uh, the idea that community spread was allowed to get out of control despite provinces building up testing capacity and, and hospital capacity? Or were there other areas where we kind of fell off over the summer? Yeah, again, I think what, what went wrong was a large, large part of it was around testing and being in control of community spread. And you know, with testing, we did ramp it up to some extent. Um, here in Ontario, the problems I'm most familiar with, we went from doing like, I think, 5,000 tests a day 
in the early days of the pandemic to, as the summer went on, to 25,000 tests per day. We now have the capacity to do 50,000, but people say we should be doing 100,000. But in September, what happened was, in many parts of the country, testing centers became completely overwhelmed because we had kids going back to school for one thing, mm-hmm. and community spread was increasing. But So we had these rules around daycare and school, right, that kids, either you had to have the children tested before they got into daycare or kids went back to school as soon as they showed any symptom or sign of COVID, they needed to get tested before they could return to class. We saw demand really balloon. And back then also too, we were encouraging, you know, pretty well anybody to go get tested. You know, even if you didn't have symptoms, you you, you know, Alberta and Ontario were had it kind of very wide open for testing. And then we started to see these huge backlogs, right? Backlogs of unprocessed tests. I mean, in Ontario, I think we hit 90,000 at one point in Ontario of unprocessed tests. So then what happened, the provinces started to narrow the testing to only those with symptoms or close contacts of cases. You know, they made the assessment centers appointment only, so no walk-ins. Right around the same time, you know, Quebec was seeing huge lineups as well and backlogs and shortages of staff and lab equipment. So, I mean, a lot of the problems have been around testing. And, and, you know, we now have these rapid tests. Um, The federal government rolled out about, I think, close to 4 million of them. But, you know, a lot of places are still trying to figure out how to to use them and where to use them, you know, long-term care homes or do you go into congregate settings. So, and we're still largely not testing people who don't have symptoms, which, you know, it's thought like as many as 40% of cases are asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the contact, the testing and the contact tracing as well is 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 an issue. I mean, Ontario, Alberta, Saskatchewan, they're all struggling with contact tracing, you know, meaning finding, you know, all contacts of known cases. Um, I read this figure the other day from Alberta that said 71% of active cases are of unknown origin, meaning they, they haven't been able to trace, right? They haven't been able to trace that that source. And that the the average time of identifying a case and notifying those close contacts is like seven to 10 days. Well, that's a lot of time for those people who were exposed to potentially be, you know, unknowingly spreading the virus. Now, with provinces struggling with testing and with contact tracing, how are provincial governments planning on dealing with this second wave? Is it just all down to restrictions at this point? Provinces have responded with a kind of, you know, roller coaster of, of different, you know, economic restrictions. Manitoba, most recently, they're in a lockdown now. They have, for probably at least two or four weeks, they're going to have, you know, non-essential businesses are closed, but schools are open. They've hired even a private security firm to crack down on people who break the rules. Uh, Nunavut has gone into a uh, uh, a territory-wide lockdown for two weeks to get their cases under control. And, you know, a couple of days ago, that was like 66 cases, 66 cases in four communities. So they are acting hard and quickly and fast. You know, they've closed all non-essential businesses and schools and, and gatherings are restricted to, I think, five people. You know, Alberta, they've cancelled um, group fitness classes. They've changed the rules around closing times for bars and restaurants. Um, they've asked people to avoid social gatherings. Here in Ontario, our Premier Doug Ford is expected to announce um, new restrictions tomorrow for Toronto, Peel and York, which are currently the hotspots. So it's kind of, it's different rules in different jurisdictions. And it's interesting because there are these growing calls for some kind of, you know, coordinated national 
end game strategy here, right? Like, yeah. in, like let's, you know, respecting that provinces, you know, should be left to determine how to respond locally, but there's really no national picture here. And perhaps we do need to have everybody gathered and premiers gathered and the scientists gathered to say, what is our national approach here? Um, maybe we need national guidelines on when we go into restrictions and come out of restrictions. You know, how do we get a world-class test, trace, isolate strategy across the country, you know, so that we can get to as close to zero as possible of these number of unknown source of transmission infections and and some kind of really you know, robust test trace strategy that would let us, you know, really smother outbreaks as soon as they happen. And, you know, of course, the big, big worry now is what happens when we move indoors, you know, will we see more transmissions in household gatherings where people, you know, we don't distance and we don't tend to wear masks. So, you know, it's really quite worrisome what what's coming, you know, in the next few weeks or so. With all of this worry about an increase in cases, a lot of people are left wondering, well, when are we going to see a vaccine for this? And despite the negative developments in the last couple of months, we are seeing some positive developments on the vaccine front. There, there are two vaccines, one from Pfizer and one from Moderna, and they've had promising results and are headed for emergency approval in the US. How did we get to this point so quickly as vaccines typically take a long time to get approved? Yeah, this is really unprecedented. And and actually today at the Oxford group that's working with AstraZeneca, they also released some promising results suggesting that their vaccine works as well in older people as it does in younger people. But it's just remarkable how fast, you know, these vaccines have spread through tests and trials. Like you said, vaccines normally take years to produce, you know, sometimes decades. And we've had, you know, huge numbers of labs around the world working flat out on COVID-19 vaccines. I think the last time I looked at almost 200 were under development. Um, you know, in, in the US, they've had Operation Warp Speed, um, this sort of $10 billion program to support companies in, you know, developing and and distributing COVID-19 vaccines. A part of the speed is because the developers, the vaccine developers, they were allowed to kind of run trials in parallel. So normally you do phase one, you know, phase two, phase three, with a long time between each phase. But now you can start phase two soon after you get the early results from phase one mm -hmm. and so on. So um, it's sort of a, it, it truncated things and accelerated things in that sense. And, you know, several companies actually started making, producing their vaccines, you know, even though there was no guarantee that they would work, um, just to have the doses ready if they did get a strong safety and efficacy signal. So, and you have governments that are prepared to use emergency approvals to get the vaccines out, you know, as soon as there's um, sufficient data that they are that they are working and that they're safe. Now, these vaccines are a little different than traditional vaccines. Can you explain the science behind them and what makes them novel? Traditional vaccines, many of them use an inactivated or weakened virus that, you know, prompts the person's body to produce antibodies or just an outer coat protein of the virus. They'll either use the actual whole virus or just this outer pro coat protein of the virus. The Pfizer and Moderna vaccines are what are called messenger RNA vaccines. So they take kind of this different approach and it's very novel approach. They carry genetic uh, instructions for the person's cells to make that 
viral, that surface protein. In this case, it's the spike protein, you know, that crown shape uh, protein that the COVID virus uses to bind human cells. So you're not just giving the person the protein, you're actually giving them the genetic material, the genetic instructions that tells them how to make the spike protein. And then the body produces antibodies in response to that protein that will then hopefully protect them from being infected when they encounter the real virus. And these mRNA vaccines, they're they're faster and cheaper to produce than traditional vaccines. And you know, the thinking is they're also safer because they're not um, produced using kind of infectious elements. Okay. So essentially that trains the body or, or forces the body to produce antibodies against the proteins that aren't connected to a viral particle so that if the virus enters your body, it knows how to fight off the proteins that would bind to your cells, correct? Right. Yeah. It's just, a, it's actually trick, exactly that, tricking the immune system or training the immune system to produce antibodies so that when you do encounter SARS-CoV-2, the virus that causes COVID, that you would be able to mount immune response and not get infected. Or, you know, it, it either what we want the vaccines to do are two things, right? We want them to uh, protect people from getting infected and transmitting the virus to other people, or at a minimum, uh, reducing the risk of severe disease if you do get infected. And you said these are have uh, fewer safety concerns than traditional vaccines? There are always risks, right, when you're designing something new, especially at this kind of breakneck speed, right? You know, the faster you go, the, the more risky things get. But, you know, so far from what we know, at least from the press releases and statements from Pfizer and Moderna, and that's been frustrating because... All of these results, the results from Pfizer and Moderna were, you know, reported through press statements, no hard data provided, you know, hasn't been peer reviewed or published in journals. So we can only take what we can, you know, we only know what they're providing us in these limited releases. But in any event, they do say that their vaccines appear safe, you know, the side effects are very similar to what you would see with for example, a flu shot, you know, achiness at the site of injections and fever and chills. But there were some people in those trials who developed such sore achiness that they had to take a day or two from work. And some people are suggesting in the U.S., well, when we roll out these vaccines, will we have, you know, one or two days sick leave for people who, who might need it um, after these injections? But anyway, but the, the, the U.S. has said, the FDA has said it will give emergency use authorization with just a median of two months of safety data. And so they have to, you know, follow people out after their second dose for two months. And a lot of people you would like, you know, we'd really like longer follow-up when you're but when you're faced with something like COVID, you know, you have to kind of take what you can get in some sense when the stakes are so high, you know. I mean, we hit nearly I think one and a half million deaths globally. Mm-hmm. We've had, I think, a thousand deaths in Canada so far in November alone. So, and the and the volunteers in these huge phase three trials, like there are thirty thousand people in these in these um, late stage trials, they will be followed out for months longer and up to two years. So, if there is a safety signal, you know, they they should see it, and they'll certainly see any kind of an an unanticipated safety signal once the vaccines are are rolled out widely. Now, assuming that they get approved, when could we see them available in Canada? 
we're talking about probably, you know, the government has said uh, we expect to see early 2021 um, and when they might be able to roll them out. They're going to going to be, uh, you know, we have to determine who's going to go first, the priority groups. It'll likely be uh, people who are most vulnerable and uh, to serious side effects, as well as, you know, frontline workers and healthcare workers. It's likely we're not going to see a wide distribution of any vaccine or vaccines um, until, you know, summer possibly fall. And then we have, of course, the challenges of distributing this vaccine, which are which are enormous. You know, mm-hmm. how do you vaccinate 40 million Canadians, right, and avoid those mass lineups and really botched uh, shortages that we saw during the huge, you know, H1N flu vaccination back in uh, 20, 2009? And as I mentioned, you know, with Pfizer and Moderna, we're also looking at like two dose vaccines, so two shots, and I think it's 21 to 28 days apart. So how do we make sure people come back for those second doses, right? Mm-hmm. So there are other challenges too around shipping the vaccine. I mean, Pfizer's vaccine has to be shipped and stored at temperatures of minus 70 degrees Celsius. So you know that means we need special trucks and special storage. Moderna's is, can be stored at much lower temperature, like regular freezer temperature. And again, you'll be immunizing people during a pandemic. So we need distancing and masking and no huge crowds. So, you know, it's not like your typical flu clinic at your doctor's office. We're, we're going to need, you know, large numbers of people to administer the vaccines. So we're going to have to be creative about where we're going to, you know, give them and administer them. Is that where you may see a national effort? You know, like you were talking earlier about a national contact tracing or national uh, testing effort could uh, vaccine distribution be where you see that big focus national effort? Well, that's what the federal government is doing now. We heard the prime minister talk about perhaps using the military to help with the rollout of vaccinations. Um, the federal government is working with the provinces, consulting now on how we how we roll the vaccines out. Um, again, it all depends on how much we get and when we get it. But, you know, it's going to be huge challenges, huge logistical challenges. But, you know, every the experts that I speak to think they're they're not insurmountable, right? That that we can do this with proper planning and coordination, and and that we won't see sort of the the real kind of chaos that we saw with the uh, with the H one N one vaccination rollout. Now I know the one thing that people have on their minds regarding a vaccine is, does this end the pandemic? People have said the only way we'll get out of this is to vaccinate ourselves out of this, right? But you know if the vaccines are as effective as Pfizer and Moderna have said that the early results show, you know, 94%, 95% effective. And if we don't see serious safety issues or concerns, vaccines would go a huge way, of course, to leading us out of this pandemic. But again, you know, as I mentioned, we need the vaccines to do two things, prevent serious and not just mild infections and keep people from being infected and infecting, you know, passing the virus to someone else. Mm-hmm. But there's lots of unknowns still, right? We don't know, you know, how long any immunity might last from a vaccination. We don't know, you know, will we need boosters? Would we need annual shots? It's also not clear how long it would take to reach herd immunity, right? We, you know, globally, I mean, we've got more than 7 billion people on the planet. Estimates are we need 60 to 70% of people immune to the virus for it to finally peter out. Um, though, you know, others have speculated it could be much lower than that. But we also need people to take the vaccine. It's interesting because polls are suggesting that 
you know, as the longer this drags on, people are becoming more saying that they will take the vaccine when it becomes available, that that trust isn't going to be the issue more, more so access is, right? Will mm-hmm. there be enough vaccine for everybody who wants it? And, you know, I spoke with Mike Osterholm. He's this really renowned American epidemiologist. And he said, you know, when the first vaccines come out, we shouldn't expect a miracle. There's nothing here that says the vaccine is going to be like a light switch, you know, on and off, that that we're still in a long battle with this virus. And even after we're vaccinated, we, you know, we'll still have to for some time mask and distance until we know how effective the vaccines are and how long our immunity lasts. At least there's hope, right? And vaccines will absolutely change the course of the situation we're in now. Sharon, always extremely informative to have you on. Thanks for your time. Oh, my pleasure, Dave. Thanks so much. 10-3 is produced by Carson Jarama. Theme music by Bryce Hall. Thanks to my guest, Sharon Kirky. More from her at nationalpost.com. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening. <laughs>